Okay, so I'll, I'll forewarn you that um, with the kind of sickness that I have right now, occasionally what will happen is I'll get that little uh, that tickle in my throat where I have to cough incessantly, and then um, it usually results in me, like, you know, uh, almost gagging. So, you know, just so you're aware of that. Uh, I was talking to Mark out there in the front lobby, and he experienced that firsthand. So I was like, hey, hold that thought. i got to run and go to drink water. So um, that might happen. I don't know if it's going to happen while I'm up here. We'll see. All right, turn to your Bible, says Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And we are in Hosea. And I'm going to sort of skip over the first part of this because I want to make sure we get to the end of today because I don't want to leave you. Um, I'm really excited about the topic today. So even though I'm sick, I, I was like, I want to I teach this. This is really, I think, um, a powerful passage, although it's simple, but it's powerful. And um, we're looking at Hosea, as you know, and so you guys know the backstory. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, but the whole point of Hosea um, Hosea was a prophet. His, his job was to point out the sin of Israel and their idolatry. And so um, there, of course, was this relationship between him and Gomer, his wife. And she was uh, basically someone who was promiscuous and went and slept with other guys, even though he was a prophet. So um, I know at this point, the controversy has surrounded Hosea and Gomer. And most of us have thought about them as just a couple that's having some issues. But I want you to now take it from just them as a couple and now think about the entire nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel saw them as a couple. So imagine this. Hosea is a prophet to Israel. Everyone there knows him as a prophet, and he has this wife, and this wife is cheating on him over and over again. But Hosea continues to pursue her. So I want you to put this in modern-day context and not to – this sounds like a twisted thought, I know. I'm not trying to make – This sound twisted, but just imagine here at TBC, if this same kind of thing happened with our main leader here at TBC, where Pastor Gary is our pastor, and and what if his wife just started running around on him, and everyone knew about it, and he was still the guy preaching on the stage, in his tears, he's preaching from the stage, and out of that pain, he's preaching up there, And, and so just imagine the controversy that would surround this church and would surround um, his experience as a pastor here. Now, I, like, I know that's a twisted thought, but this is what's happening to Hosea. He's a prophet. Everyone knows him as a prophet. And, and you would think a prophet would have a stable family. Um, you would think a prophet would have that part of his life together, but obviously that's not the case. Um, Gomer went off the deep end into sin. And so um, what I want you to get from this is that as Israel looked into that controversy, and as they pointed at Gomer, the wife, and were saying to her, okay, you're, you're a sicko, you're perverted, you're crazy, and Hosea, you're just as weird for, you keep on pursuing this lady. What are you doing this for, right? And, and so as, as Israel's looking at that controversy, Hosea is now able to turn things around and say, okay, the real controversy is about you all and your idolatry. That's the real controversy here. In fact, that's why she's doing this, to be an example to what you guys are, are doing to God. And so at some point in the book, which is today, we're going to cover this today, Israel's confronted in their sin, and God lays out for them what their sins are, and he confronts them in their sin, and then God says, I'm going to judge you for your sin. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to bring some destruction your way and some judgment your way. 
And then Israel decides, okay, okay, we're going we're gonna to repent. We're going we're, we're gonna to repent. We're going we're gonna to turn. And so they experience what I call false repentance. It's not real repentance. It's false repentance. And so we're going to look at two questions today. What is false repentance and what is real repentance? Now, everyone look at me just briefly. Um, I want you to understand something. If, if you understand and apply what we're talking about today, and you apply this to your relationship with God, and you apply this to your relationship with other people, this will transform the way that you do relationships. This will transform everything about your life as it relates to God and as it relates to your relationship. So think of all the pain in your life that you've experienced up to this point and how much of that has been relational pain. And let me tell you this morning that I guarantee you, there's no other way around it, all relational pain that any of us experience goes back to one thing. Somebody didn't repent. Somebody didn't repent. Or someone repented, but it was false repentance. It wasn't real. Every divorce that's ever happened in the history of the world has gone back to this one thing. Somebody didn't repent. Somebody may have pretended to repent, but they repented falsely. And so if you can grab a hold of this one thing today and apply it for the rest of your life, I'm not saying that bad things won't happen to you. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying to you that you will be on a course towards Christ-likeness. And so look with me at at Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So the scene here is like a courtroom where God is basically saying to the people of Israel, this is what you're guilty of. Let me just give you this list. So he has Hosea read off this long list of what they're guilty of, and it's everything that you would expect, because what happens when people don't love God is it leads to these kinds of things. It's not like people just end up sinning haphazardly and doing these things randomly. It usually goes from, okay, you let go of your first love, which was God, and you went off the deep end into sin. And so I always want you to understand this one thing about sin. Sin doesn't just happen in your life. It happens as a result of you losing love for Jesus. It always goes that direction. You, you, you lose love for Jesus. You, you, you don't focus on love for Jesus, and it's going to take you down the slippery slope into these kinds of things. So you're never going to hear me stand up here and say, hey, just avoid sin. Just, just stay away from sin. I'm always going to point you to love for God, love for Christ. And as we said a couple weeks ago, that the way you avoid carrying out the desires of the flesh is what? Remember Galatians chapter 5? What does it say? What do you do? Remember what it says? You walk in the what? You walk in the spirit. And so that's the way that you avoid the flesh is that you walk in the spirit. Love Jesus, love God. That will keep you from these things. Right? So look with me. Um, so this is the, the, the list that God has laid out for the nation and, uh, in Hosea chapter 4. And then this is really a summary of, of Hosea 4 and, and even chapter 5. Uh, Israel is guilty of lots and lots of things uh, that I won't get into necessarily right now. <clears throat> but look with me now over at 
Hosea chapter 5, verse 6. So flip over to that. And in chapter 5, God announces his coming judgment on Israel. And he says, because of this stuff you've been doing and your lack of love for me and your idolatry, I'm now going to judge you and I'm now going to bring destruction your way. And so this is their reaction, though, and this is what I call false repentance. Their reaction in in chapter 5, verse 6 Look with me what it says in chapter 5, verse 6. It says, With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. So here's what they do. When they hear of their coming judgment, they bring sacrifices. Oh, okay, God, okay, God. We, we were just joking about that whole idolatry thing. We weren't serious about that. We're going to get our stuff together. We're going to walk up the to the temple hill, and we're going to start making sacrifices to appease God. And, you know, it's kind of like when you guys, you know how it is when you get caught with something. Like, you, you get caught by your parents, and you know you're in trouble, and, and you just quickly are like, ah, okay, okay, I'll clean my room, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this. And just to appease them, just to make sure that you can maybe lay off the punishment for a little while. Uh, and my son does this. My son's five years old. And it's amazing how quickly, when I, when I say, when I catch him in the act of doing something he knows he's not supposed to be doing, and I'll say to him, okay, you know what? I've told you that ten times, so you are getting a spanking, right? And so as I'm going down the, to the room to get the, the little wooden spoon, which I know sounds painful, but it's not that bad. And, uh, and so we're, we're heading down to the, the bedroom, and, and, of course, he is trying to make amends on the way to the place where we're going to have the spanking. He's, he's trying to, in a sense, bring out all the sacrifices. He's trying to make it all right. I'm like, no, buddy, you've, you've already crossed the line. You're still going to get punished for this. What kind of dad would I be if I listened to your little negotiation, right? <clears throat> and so, but this is what many of us do with God. And, and so what I, want to, what I want you to get from this is that they hear of their coming judgment, and so they bring sacrifices, now they're seeking God, but why are they doing that? They're doing it to avoid judgment. They're doing it to avoid punishment. This is not real repentance. This is not real repentance. So I want to ask you a series of questions to get you thinking about what does false repentance versus what is real repentance. So the first question is this. Is your repentance motivated by fear of punishment? When you repent, is it motivated by fear of punishment? Is that all that motivates you? Repentance based on fear isn't true, repent, true repentance. It's, it's false repentance. I would say it this way, that there are some people I know when you're a little kid, um, there are some little kids that if you ask them, you know, okay, if you say to a kid, little kid, so why are you a Christian? They'll say, well, because I don't want to go to hell. You know, someone told me about hell one time, and I'm like, I don't want to go there, so I'm going to become a Christian. Now, I understand when you're a little kid, you don't really understand things fully, and so when you're a small kid, a kid might come to know Christ because of fear of punishment or a fear of judgment. And I'm not going to sit here and say that, like, every kid that makes a decision just based on that is not a Christian because I can't judge that. But what I will say is if your entire life, if, if all that's keeping you, like, in the Christian camp or if all that you're holding on to is I just gave my life to Christ when I was young because I wanted to, I wanted to escape hell. I wanted to escape judgment and punishment, and that's it. And there's no love, no passion, no zeal for Christ. I would question your faith. I would question your faith. I would question whether or not you're a Christian. I would say it this way. Repenting 
to escape hell is like getting married just to escape singleness. So if, if you get married one day and, and your, your wife says to you, or your fiance says to you, so why did you want to marry me? And you say, I just wanted to not be single. So that's, that's it. That's all. What about love for me, passion for me, zeal? For, no, it wasn't really about that. I just didn't want to avoid singleness. That's pretty much it. I mean, imagine if that was your response. We understand that response would be wrong when it comes to your fiance, but when it comes to God and a relationship with him, there are plenty of people that would say, I just had this thing with God because I wanted to escape punishment. I wanted to escape hell, and that's it. And I would question, like, is that person really a believer? I'm not sure that, that, that they are, that they really are. So is your repentance motivated by fear of punishment? The next question, do you use the rituals of repentance without a heart of repentance? Do you use the rituals of repentance without a heart of repentance? So what are the rituals for you? What are the sacrifices that you make to make yourself feel right with God? Do you focus on when you get in trouble or when you go to God and even have the false repentance, a little showy thing with God? What are the things that you bring to him? What are the things that you start doing to make you feel better about yourself when you've sinned against him? Whether it's, uh, well, I'm just going to go and I'm going to spend some more time reading my Bible and praying while your heart is still far from him. Or I'm going to go and be part of, uh, of, a, of a church group because, or I'm going to go on a mission trip. I need to do something. But all the while, your heart is still far from him. You've, you've had no repentance, no change of heart. So what are the rituals that you get involved in? What are those sacrifices for you without having a heart of repentance? Because you and I do these things. We do these things as a facade to make ourselves feel repentant, to give ourselves just enough. Okay, I, I did that, and I did that good thing. Therefore, I feel like I'm okay with God. I'm okay with him. So what do you do? What are your rituals? What are your sacrifices that you make? This would be like jumping, listen to me, jumping to rituals like the Israelites did, before heart change is offensive to God. That's offensive to his, our relationship with him. Jumping into ritual before we have heart change is offensive to him. This would be like a guy, listen, this would be like a guy cheating on his wife, and when his wife finds out, he responds, well, how about we make Friday date night? Right? I mean, this guy has no clue what he's just done, right? Like he's, he's cheated on his wife and she finds out about it and she's, you know, throwing knives at him. And he says to her, well, let's just make Friday date night. What? That, that guy has no clue the depravity he has sunk to. He's not even aware of how far he has, he has gone, right? But that's what many of us do with God. We, okay, okay, God, well, I'll, what can I do to make myself feel better about this situation? Next question. If you apologize, do you only apologize partially? This is a really convicting one. I wrote out some <clears throat> ways this happens. So when, when someone, when you wrong someone and you know you're in the wrong, but you don't want to fully admit that, that you're in the wrong, and so you know you've got to apologize, but you're only going to do it partially, right? That, that's false repentance. So here's some examples of what we do. 
I'm sorry I did that. I only did that because, and you fill in the blank, basically you did it because they did something to you. So you apologize, but it's, it's partially, it's a partial apology. Or how about this one? I'm sorry that hurt you, right? Just the way you phrase that, what you're really saying is, I'm sorry that you're so sensitive and that that hurt your feelings, you little, you little sensitive, like, you know, like you're just, right? So, so you're not really apologizing. You're really mad at them for being too sensitive, right? It's a partial apology. Or how about this one? I was just joking around. Once again, you're too sensitive, and I was joking around. You should know I was joking around, and you need to get over it. That's what you're really saying. It's a partial apology. How about this one? I'm sorry I did that. Now get over it, right? I'm sorry I did that. Now get over it, right? You rush the apology. You rush the the process for them. Okay, I apologize for that yesterday. You should be completely over that by now, right? That's a partial apology. Or how about this one? I think we are both equally at fault. I think we are 50-50. We're equally at fault. So let's just call it a truce. That's a partial apology. That's a partial apology. And let me tell you, what I just described to you, this happens in marriage all the time. Married people in the room, am I right about this? Are there any married people in the room? A few of you, yes? This happens all the time in marriage where your wife or your husband, they have an issue with something that you said or did, and, and you just, everything in you is like, I'm not going to apologize for this. Like, I will do everything I can to do one of these little halfway apologies just so I appease them enough to make them go away. I'll admit, that's how sinful we are. And believe me, when you get married, all of your sin will come out in ways that you never knew it existed. (laughs) Right? Right? Your friends don't bring out the sin in you like your future husband or wife will. Right? Right? So the next question I want you to see is this, the next question. Do you always see yourself as the victim? Do you always see yourself as the victim? Do you speak more about everyone else's sin than you do your own? Are you a person who always talks about how everyone has wronged you, everyone sinned against you, but you never admit to when you sin against other people? Do you always see yourself as the victim of everyone else's sin? I thought of this quote recently. I don't have it on the screen, but I want you to write this down. If you always see yourself as a victim, if you always see yourself as a victim, you will victimize others. If you always see yourself as a victim, you will absolutely victimize other people. In fact, there's a person, um, I don't want to get into the story, but there's a person that I know very well that um, right now is living this out. And it's affecting a person who's very close to me in a negative way. And this person that I'm describing to you, she's always seen herself as a victim. Everyone's hurt her. Everyone's harmed her. Everyone's offended her. And yet the the irony of all that is because she sees herself as the victim, all the time the victim, she is the one that victimizes other people the worst. And it's hurtful. It's hurtful. Do you see yourself always as a victim? Now I want to go to what does real repentance look like? 
What is true repentance? Look over at Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. I want to paint a picture for you now what, what true repentance is supposed to look like. And this is what it says in, in verse, uh, Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. God says, I will return again to my place. So what he's saying now is, I'm going to withdraw from the people of Israel. I'm going to return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. So what you see here is um, God withdraws from the nation of Israel. And you might think to yourself, that seems so unlike him. Doesn't he just kind of stay around and hang around like, yeah, I'm over here. Whenever you're ready, come on back. No, there are times in Scripture where it says God, because of their idolatry and sin, God withdraws himself from them. Now, I'm not trying to say to you that people lose their salvation if, if they're saved. I'm not, not going to get into all that's a different sermon, different day. That'd be a great question, by the way, for your little Ask Anything series, just so you're aware of that. Um, but I'm not, I'm not saying that. But in Scripture, we see God withdraws his presence from the nation when they turn their back on him, right? When they're walking in sin, God says, I'm going to go over here until you acknowledge your guilt and seek my face. Now, so watch what happens. What is the one thing God wants to have them do? Look in the verse. What does it say? What's the one thing he wants to have them do? The first thing. Go ahead and say it. I know this isn't class, but acknowledge their guilt. That's the first thing. And I want you to see what follows next. When they acknowledge their guilt, look what happens. What what happens? They They seek his face. So let's just follow this logically. You will, not, you will not seek God, you will not seek Jesus until you fully acknowledge your guilt. One thing leads to another one. You will not seek after God until you acknowledge your guilt. There's no other way to come to, come to Christ. There's no other way to turn your life to Jesus, to turn your life over to God. And so the first question I have for you, do you fully acknowledge your guilt? Do you fully acknowledge your guilt? Not just before God, but before other people when you sin against them. As you guys know, guilt is not a popular concept in our culture, is it? If you start throwing around words like sin and guilt in our culture, people are going to look at you funny and be like, you're like, you're weird. You're like one of those old school weird people. In fact, this past week I saw this little video on YouTube. There was a, an anchor from CNN who was interviewing a pastor, and she was talking about sin and those kinds of things. And, and this pastor used the word sin and conviction um, in the interview. And she said, she said so you think, that, you think that's a sin, referring to a certain kind of sin? You think that's a sin? And he said, yeah, I believe it is. It's, scripture calls that a sin. And she said, well, that's not very uplifting. That's not very uplifting. That was her response in the interview on, on CNN. And that's where our culture's at. That's where our culture is at. Like, we don't talk about sin. We don't talk about guilt. We don't talk about conviction because those are not uplifting things to think about. But let me tell you something this morning. Look at me. Look at me. One of the most, the most freeing truth that I can give to you is this, is that apart from Christ, you and I are completely and totally, utterly guilty. 
before him. That is the most refreshing and uplifting truth I can give to you this morning. Otherwise, why else was he killed on a cross? If that's not true about us, then why else was he uplifted onto a cross on our behalf? Why? There is no other reason except the fact that you and I are completely and totally guilty apart from Christ. We're not just people who make mistakes or commit errors, but we are actually guilty. Guilty. Evil and guilty apart from Christ. I had a friend um, that went to Rwanda this past month uh, on a mission trip. And Danny Cunningham, our executive pastor, he went to Rwanda with some uh, other guys for a mission trip. And one of the things he said to me was that they met with several of these women that were prostitutes. And these women, <clears throat> these women are, are women who have come out of prostitution. And here's what's crazy about this. Many of these females have gone through abuse. They've, gone, they've seen all kinds of evil, which eventually led to them committing great acts of evil. And so what he said was, what's amazing is as they shared their testimonies, they didn't talk about how they were victims. They didn't talk about how, well, this happened to me when I was a kid, so I went off into prostitution. What they said and what, what amazed him was that they said, I was guilty. I did evil things. And they understood that this, this truth about themselves is the reality, that they're guilty. They're guilty before God. And they've got to acknowledge that guilt before they can turn to Christ. The next question I want to ask you is this. Does your repentance lead to restitution? Does your repentance lead to restitution? Does it lead to you making things right, making repairs where you can make repairs? There's a quote that I, I found this past week in relation to this. Go to my next slide. By a preacher named Charles Finney, he said, the thief has not repented while he keeps the money he stole. So if you take something from someone and you're like, yeah, man, sorry about me taking your, your money. And the guy's like, okay, well, can I have it back? No. Well, you haven't really repented then, right? That, that doesn't fit, right? So as much as you can, if, if repairs can be made in something that you've done, then that needs to be done. Otherwise, you're not repentant. Another one. Next question. Do you rush people to forgive you? Do you rush people to forgive you? You see, the repentant, the truly repentant person knows they don't really deserve forgiveness. So let me give you a scenario. I'm not going to mention names and stuff like that, but there's a, um, I've got a family member way back on the East Coast, and I want to get into details, but basically this family member uh, cheated on his wife. <clears throat> now they're divorced. They've got a kid. Uh, they got divorced, and here's what happened, though. After the affair, everyone knew about it. Um, his response was, well, I know I messed up, but I've repented. I mean, so now she's supposed to forgive me. Like, she's commanded by God to forgive me, so she has to forgive me. That was his response. And my thought was, okay, well, if, you're, if that's your attitude, I'm not sure you've really repented. If that's going to be your attitude, I'm not sure I can say with confidence that you really have a heart of repentance. Then he gets mad at me for saying that to him. I'm like, well, now your anger is confirming the fact that you haven't really repented. You know, 
and on and on we go. But here's the deal. If you try to rush people to forgive, to forgive you, if you say like, okay, I know I messed up, but you know, you're supposed to forgive me. I mean, I said, I was sorry. You're supposed to forgive me now. I mean, you don't rush someone to forgive you because you're forgetting about what you did. To truly be repentant is to go to them and say, I am so sorry, and I don't know if you can forgive me. I'm praying that you can, but I know I don't deserve it. And what's amazing, if you say that to someone, now they're probably more free to forgive you because they know you have acknowledged your guilt. You fully acknowledged it. And you can move on in relationship with them. Uh, two last quotes and we're done. You guys can have a little bit of discussion here in a minute. <clears throat> I heard a talk this past week. The great thing about this was I wanted to talk about false repentance today. And so I went to a conference on Thursday and Friday up in Dallas with some other pastors from TBC. And I was cramming to get this stuff done before I left out to go out of town. We get to the conference and one of my favorite speakers named Eric Mason is talking about uh, the characteristics of a truly repentant person. That was the title of his talk, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus. And so uh, he had this one quote that was very simple, but I thought I wanted to put it on the screen. And it was his first quote that he said out of, in the middle of his talk, and he said this, you can't become a believer without repentance. That's a simple quote, but I think we forget that. You can't come to know Christ without acknowledging your guilt before him, without repentance. You can't do it. You can't become a believer by saying, oh, I went to church one time, and I just... I like the gospel story. It's neat. It, I felt warm and fuzzy in a church service one time, and I just had this little heart pitter-patter, and I just thought, I want to do that more often, so I'm going to go to church, and I guess I'm a Christian now. No, that's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you realize you're complete and utter depravity before God, and you acknowledge your guilt to him, and you fall on your face in worship and cry out to him. That's when you become a Christian, and not before, and not before. And the last quote I want you to see is that repentance leads to short-term pain but long-term joy. Repentance leads to short-term pain but long-term joy. So my encouragement to you this morning is if you're someone who you think you're a Christian but maybe after today you thought, maybe I'm not, my encouragement to you is it's painful. Acknowledging your guilt before God is painful but look at me. Everyone look at me. You cannot become a Christian until you go to Jesus and completely and totally acknowledge your guilt before him and put your faith and trust in him and his work on the cross for you. You can't become a Christian until that happens. Nothing else makes you a Christian until that happens. So if you are, find yourself in that place this morning, my encouragement to you is make today the day where that happens for his glory and for your joy. Go ahead and discuss it uh, with the questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.